right, let's study God's Word for a little bit. Our study is in 2 Kings. 2 Kings. Let's take our Bibles and turn there. 2 Kings chapter 22. And let me ask you a question just kind of at the start that will hopefully set the tone a little bit for our study. If you are going to assess your daily life, just your normal routine and the things you go about doing and the people you come in contact with, how often would you say, and this is not a question I want you to shout out, though if you want to, that's fine. How often would you say that you influence people? And then how often would you say that you're influenced by people? As you look at the 100% of your life, what percentage of your life is influencing other people and what percentage of your life is being influenced by people? Now, we all repeatedly are influenced throughout the day through advertising, through friends, through family members, through things in our culture. Uh, Even if it is a reaction to reject what's being offered or what's being said, even if we disagree with it completely, in some ways it's influencing us, not only in terms of how we think, but in terms of how we react. But I'm not really talking about the influence of advertising or friends or whatever. I'm talking about the impact that is made on us or that we are making spiritually. Throughout the course of the 168 hours this week until we come back next week and have Huntley here and study God's Word, throughout those 168 hours, how much are you going to influence people spiritually and how much are they going to influence you spiritually, positively or negatively? Now, we have to think about these things because Christ has called us to be people of influence. The jobs that he gave to us when he went back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit and said, you're better off now because my spirit is going to come to you and he's going to indwell you and he's going to comfort you and help you and teach you and use you. My spirit's going to come, so I'm going to give you responsibilities because I'm leaving, he's coming, the job's on you now. So I'm going to give you three responsibilities to, to uh, serve me. One is to be my disciples. A disciple who is, is somebody who follows the authority and models himself after the master. Disciples in the, Old, in the New Testament would literally join up with the master and live with them and walk with them and serve them and, and minister with them and learn everything about them until they became like the master. So we're his disciples. This is one of our callings, to be like Christ. Then he says, you're my ambassadors. And ambassadors are representative. There's somebody that goes before and is an emissary and a representative of the person that they are um, following. And they fulfill the commands that the person who's, who's kind of over them is giving them so that there is no separation between the one they're serving and what they're doing. So Christ says, you're my disciples. You're to be like me. You're my ambassadors. You're to represent me. And then he says, you're my witnesses. You're to talk about me. You're to go into the world and preach the gospel. That wasn't just for the 12. That wasn't just for the 120. That's for us. Go into the world. Go out there and preach the gospel and make disciples, make more people like you. Let them know about my grace and mercy, and then draw them uh, to an understanding of Christ. My Spirit will step in and draw them to Himself and save them, and now you're to help them, like we did with these children, you're to help them grow. So we're disciples, we're ambassadors, and we're witnesses. 
Every one of those jobs is designed to outwardly influence somebody else. Every one of those jobs is not about us, about what we get, about what we do, about what people think about us. Every one of those jobs is to influence people outside of ourselves for Christ. Now, the devil knows this, and he hates it. Because he knows that if we're fulfilling the calling that Christ gave us to be disciples, ambassadors, and witnesses, that his kingdom, which has already been defeated forever, his kingdom will have far less influence than it has right now. So he fights it. He fights our outward influence by trying to hit us internally. And what the devil wants to do is to zap us, take every bit of spiritual vitality, spiritual passion, spiritual desire, spiritual love for the Lord, and to diminish that. So he wants us to stay immature. He wants us to be passive. He doesn't want us to praise the Lord. He doesn't want us to study the Word. He doesn't want us to call on the Lord. He doesn't want us to give. He wants us to stay lukewarm and passive because he knows that the Lord can't stand that. So we have a calling. We have an enemy who fights that. Our calling is to be outward. The battle is taking place inward. So let's come back to the question and then change it a little bit because we want to make it a little bit more personal. Not only how often am I being influenced and how often am I influencing, but let's let's make it more personal now and more analytical. The question then is, what kind of influence do I have on other people? What are people going to know this week? What are people going to learn this week about the Lord because of me? Are they going to be drawn to the Lord? Are they going to understand His grace and mercy? Are they going to see what it means to really trust fervently? Are they going to see joy? Are they going to see passion? Are they going to realize that I'm a person of prayer? Are they going to understand that I set aside time to study the Word? Are they going to see me raising my kids to know Christ? Or are they going to see something else? What are people going to see from you and me this week? What influence are we going to have on them? Do I exemplify Christ and lead people toward Christ? Uh, At the end of this week, when we get to next Sunday, are the people that I've run into and the people that you've run into going to be more interested in the Lord or less? Are they going to be more drawn to holiness or less? Are they going to know what it is to trust the Lord more or less? Now, as His children, we're called to this. This is not negotiable. This is not debatable. It's not something we choose or don't choose. This is the calling we've been giving. And our study this morning shows that any single person who loves the Lord can have this kind of influence. In fact, we're going to look at someone who had an influence even as a child. 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, we see a man who became king at the age of 8. His name was Josiah. And Josiah was a man who even early in his life apparently made decisions that would set him on the right course for the rest of his life. And we see that because as we look at him later, we see his spiritual discernment and his commitment to spiritual reform. And we have to understand that this passage, 2 Kings 22, takes place at a time when Israel and Judah were both far from the Lord. And by far from the Lord, I don't mean they had just backslid. I mean they were worshiping idols with regularity. 
So we've come a long way from David, who followed the Lord and set the nation on the right path, down all the way, the kingdom divided. We've had evil kings in both nations. The people have scattered in terms of their spiritual mindset. The people have abandoned God. Now, as we're going to see in a couple minutes, there are idols in the temple, and people don't think anything of it. And along comes Josiah. Look at it, chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah, of Bozkath. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Mezalam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers had gathered from the people. Let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord uh, to the carpenter, I'm sorry, I must, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house to the carpenters and the builders and the masons for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands for they deal faithfully. Then Hilkiah the high priest, verse 8, said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and had delivered it into the hand of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now, Josiah becomes king at eight. Even early on, there is a sense that he is willing to follow the Lord, but he's eight. I have a son that age. He's a fantastic kid. He's very capable. I don't know if I'd put him in trust of the whole country, although at this point, how could he do worse? But an eight-year-old, an eight-year-old, is now overseeing the nation of God's people. Now, God knew something. This was not accidental. This was not just because his father was evil and they needed a substitute. There was something about Josiah that was in his heart. And at eight, as he's in command, because this is not a puppet king, this is the actual king God's put in place. He could make poor, reckless, impulsive, selfish decisions, which would be normal for any eight-year-old or even for any teenager, but he doesn't. And even though his father was evil, Josiah determines in his heart early on to walk with the Lord. How do we know that? Look at verse 2. It said, he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Now the corresponding passage in Chronicles says at 16, eight years later after he became king, he really started to fervently seek the Lord. And by the time he was 20, he started to get very, very serious about spiritual reform in the nation. Now we see at age 26, year 18, 
he's still young. He's still kind of that, that youthful guy. But we see at age 26, he says to the high priest, hey, go count the money that's been collected to repair the temple. And we'll talk in a minute about why the temple was in need of repair. But he says, go get the money and let's count it, and let's figure out what we need, because we got to rebuild this temple. It's in disarray. we got to get all the stonemasons and all the, the brick cutters, and we got all those people. we gotta, we got to get this place back together. Now, here's where it gets very interesting. And here's where we see the heart of the people and the spiritual state of the nation. Because while the workmen are doing their work, the high priest is in there, and he's kind of overseeing what's going on, and he finds the book of the law. Now, it goes without saying that the book of the law should have been in the center of the temple, but for some reason it hasn't been, and we'll find out why in a second. But I want you to see back in the text the three reactions that, that we get when the book of the law is found because it tells us a lot about Judah's spiritual condition. The fact, first of all, that the high priest didn't even know where the book of the law was should tell us all we need to know. The senior pastor, so to speak, the, the main one in, in the church, so to speak, doesn't even know where his Bible is, doesn't know where the book is that will guide them and lead them and show them what God wants and how God has led them. This is how detached the nation was from the Lord. And, and then you see this guy, Shaphan, the scribe, and when the high priest, Hilkiah, says, hey, you got to take this to Josiah. This is really important. We just found the book of the law. And he gives it to Shaphan. The text says that Shaphan read it. And then Shaphan takes it to Josiah. Did you catch what he says? Hey, Hilkiah sent this to me. He found some book. He doesn't say, oh, king, the high priest has found the book of the law that we've been looking for for so long. This is great. I read it. Now we can have the spiritual reform because now we can follow God. He just says, look, I got some book. Uh, Hilkiah sent this over to me. You need this? So the spiritual condition of the people was dull. And then there's Josiah's reaction. Look back at it. It's in verse 11. He grieves and he tears his clothes, which was a sign of mourning. Because he knows the nation is facing discipline. But what is sadly fascinating is that he isn't even familiar with what the law says. This is somebody that was following God. This is somebody that was walking the way David did. This is somebody after 18 years of being king that hadn't turned to the right or to the left. He was interested in God. He was following God. He was trusting God. And yet when they bring out the book of the law and they start to read it to him, he starts to grieve like he's never heard it before because apparently he hasn't. The word of God has been so decentralized that Josiah has no idea what God has ever said. And when he hears it, and he hears that God is sending judgment on the people because they've rebelled against them, he literally rips his clothes and he starts to say, we are in so much trouble. We have got to get right with the Lord because there's judgment coming. And he asks the high priest and four other guys, he says, you guys need to go pray. You need to go ask the Lord what we're supposed to do next. Now, there are two important spiritual principles, and I want to encourage you to write these down this morning. Two important spiritual principles here that we need to apply. There are going to be more, but these kind of set the foundation for the rest of the study. The first truth we need to understand is the Word of God will always give us a more thorough insight into the reality of sin than we can perceive on our own. That's long, so let me say it again. The Word of God will always give us more insight, more thorough insight 
into the reality of sin than we can perceive on our own. When Josiah hears the book of the law read, his reaction is immediate and it's visceral. He tears his clothes as a sign of mourning because he is instantly ashamed of the sin of the people and he's afraid of the wrath of God. He had a heart for the Lord, but he didn't have the perception of how deep the nation was into sin, how spiritually unhealthy they were, and though he knew it was kind of bad, he had been so conditioned by it, and, and, and the, the culture was so tolerant of sin that it didn't grieve anybody. And listen, this happens so easily to us. This happens so easily to us. Even though we have a new nature and a transformed mind, sin is so pervasive in our culture. We talked about it last week. And we have become so used to it and even participating in it that we are dull to its danger. But what happens with Josiah here is, is what the Word of God does to us when we study it. Listen, this is why the devil does not want you in the Word of God. Because when you're in the Word of God, it wakes your heart up. When you're in the Word of God, it shows the depth of understanding and discernment about the pervasiveness and the danger of sin. And Josiah, when he hears the Word, even though his heart's inclined to God, when he hears the Word... All of a sudden, he says, uh-oh. This is worse than I thought. You see, the Bible exposes sin. Why do we emphasize the Word of God? Because it exposes sin. It draws it out. It causes us to understand, thy word have I hid my heart so I might not what? Tell me. Sin against you. In other words, the Bible, as we get it into our heart, it reveals and exposes and, and helps us understand and gives us greater discernment. Uh-oh, I'm on the wrong path. Uh-oh, I'm leaning towards sin. Other, I, I'm inclined to, to follow my pride at this point. The Word of God does that for us. The second truth is that the best reaction to conviction is always to immediately ask the Lord, what do I do? The best reaction to conviction is always to immediately ask the Lord, what do I do? Notice in verse 13 that his first directive is to say, go inquire of the Lord. In other words, all right, guys, we have a problem here. Find out how can we be right. How can we turn God's anger and judgment aside? We're going to face it. We deserve it. There's no question it's coming. But what do we do now? You know, one of the best prayers that we can pray is, Lord, what do I do now? Some of us pray that all the time, right? I got no clue. What do I do now? You know what? That's a great prayer. God gives us wisdom through his word. He gives us direction through his spirit. But there are times where we say to ourselves, I don't know what to do next. And instead of making a pro and con list, instead of asking our friends, instead of grieving, instead of being nervous and anxious and fearful and worrying and fretting and saying, what should I do? All we need to do is go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do I do next? And that's hard because it requires humility. It requires admitting I'm not in control. And here's, Lord, what I've tried to take control of, and it's turned into a disaster. And, Lord, you need to help me. Sometimes it's just as simple as saying, please, Lord, show me what to do next. See, Judah had needed that for years. 
decades, hundreds of years, the nation had needed somebody to say, Lord, what do we do? But they were so dull and so lifeless, and it shows in the neglect of the temple. Why are they having to rebuild the temple only 350 years after it was built? Why was it neglected? Why, why was there a problem? See, the spiritual neglect had led to physical and moral neglect. The people had stopped caring about the Lord, so they had stopped caring about the things of the Lord. They knew they needed to repair it, but they didn't know why. And they were so used at this point and, and so disaffected spiritually that now there are false idols in the temple. There's prostitution in the temple. And, and people don't think it's a big deal. It's not a problem. What's the problem? We go to the temple. It's kind of torn down. There's all sorts of depravity. There's false gods in here. What's the big deal? They had become dulled to sin. You see, when we stop exercising our faith, our life falls into disrepair. It's an undeniable connection. If you don't exercise your faith, you will get out of shape. So if your life is in disrepair this morning, you need to examine that first. And once the problem is exposed, you need to deal with it aggressively. Look at chapter 23, verse 2. Josiah gathers every single person in Judah to Jerusalem. From the babies all the way to the elderly, he gathers everybody together. Not one person in the nation is missing in Jerusalem. They all gather there. Imagine how this looked. And they stand up and they read the whole book of the covenant to the people. Notice how the, the wording there shifts from the book of the law to the book of the covenant. In other words, the Holy Spirit's saying to us, this was not just rules and regulations. Josiah had the people stand there and listen to the covenant that God had made with them and the covenant that they had made with God. They needed to know this was not just, okay, look, Martha, we're going to go and we're going to listen to the book of the law. This is really, really boring, but we got to stand here because Josiah said we got to stand here. So kids, try to be quiet, okay? Play on your iPads. The guy's reading the law up there and we've got to listen. This was not a, a sterile, dull reading of the law. That's why the Holy Spirit changes the word. They read the book of the covenant. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness. It was a reminder of their responsibility to it. And then Josiah, when the law is read, you see this in verses 2 to 8, he says, I'm now going to make a personal covenant with the Lord. Then I'm going to love the Lord with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And I'm going to walk after the Lord. And that's a personal covenant he makes as the leader. But all the people say, you're right, we need to do this too. So the people make the covenant before the Lord. This is similar to what we did with these ten children this morning. That the parents come and say, we're making a commitment to the Lord. This is not minor. This is not so you can look at the nice dress or the nice outfit the baby's got that was my grandmother's or whatever. That, that's not the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to say, we are dedicated. We are committed. We are declaring before the Lord, this child, and this body that we are going to raise this child to love the Lord the way we love the Lord. And we're asking you for help. The people make a new covenant before the Lord and they say, we are going to follow the Lord. We are going to obey the Lord. But listen, to make that kind of commitment sometimes requires serious change. And for the people of Judah, it meant a complete alteration of their lifestyle and their influences and their desires. The question is, are you and I willing to do that? 
We're bothered right now about what's going on in the nation, right? We're bothered by what we see. We're bothered by the changes. We're bothered by the laws. We're bothered by the fact that sin is so open now that it's not hidden anymore, that the influence of Christianity is diminishing, not growing. We're bothered by that, right? Somebody tell me right so I know I'm not alone. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Are we going to change? Are we going to go to the level of saying, Lord, my life is completely yours, not part way. I'm going to give up those desires that hinder me from being an influence because you've called me to be an influence. And our temptation's stoked and our desires are stoked and we fall back a little bit. Listen, there's no middle of the road. God doesn't give us that latitude. He doesn't say, you can be for me one day and against me the next. Kind of go back and forth, walk the middle line, do your best. There, there is none of that in Scripture. You're for me or you're against me. You love me or you hate me. You're hot or you're cold. There's no middle. So what's it going to be for us? Is that how we're going to live? Are we going to resist the devil knowing that he'll flee? See, Josiah knew how the people were inclined. And he knew that they had a tendency to make a promise and not fulfill it. So look at what he does to diffuse the temptation. And I want you to notice, we're going to read about six verses here. I want you to ask yourself as we read this, when was the last time I did something this drastic to make sure that the influence of a certain temptation didn't pull me down? When was the last time I did something this drastic to make sure that I didn't fall back into sin? Now, these are very extreme examples of sin, but they're similar to the vices of our culture. And they're similar to the idols that we establish. And they're similar to the, to the, to the, uh, the temptations that we have in life. So don't, don't read this and say, well, look at that. I mean, there was prostitution in the temple. That would never happen. Look, there are other ways that we prostitute ourselves. There are other ways that we set up idols. There are other ways that we, that we make other things God. So look at what Josiah does. It's here in chapter 23 and verse 4. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, for Asherah, for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, to the constellations, to the host of heaven. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, here's what Josiah does. And we need to go through this quickly because time is short. But, but there are five steps that he takes. We're going to spend 30 seconds on each. Five things that he does. First of all, he brings everything related to the false gods out of the temple. The vessels for Baal and Asherah were in the temple. 
and the prostitutes were conducting their business in the house of the Lord. Think about that. You walk in this morning and there are false idols everywhere and people are bowing down to them and people, forgive me, are prostituting themselves in the back room as worship to the false gods. Can you imagine what you would feel? And you know what the people felt here? Nothing. It didn't bother them. 350 years removed from David. They had lost generation after generation after generation because nobody was willing to stand for the Lord and against spiritual compromise. So the first thing Josiah does is he brings it out of the temple. Second look at it. He burns them and he gets rid of the priests who had allowed them and promoted them. He didn't just bring it out and have a garage sale. You know what? We need to get this out of the temple. Let's put this outside. Whoever wants to take it can take it. How many know that the best way to get rid of temptation is to remove it completely? It's not to continue to mess with it. He doesn't just bring it out and say, whoever wants this, just take it. At least it's not in the temple. No, the way is not to transfer the problem to somebody else. The way is to completely eliminate it. So what does Josiah do? He burns all of it and takes the ashes to Bethel, which was a sacred place to the Jews. Then third, look at it. He does away with all the leaders who had embraced idolatry. They were supposed to burn incense to God. Instead, they burned it to the sun and the moon, which was very big back then, and the constellations and the heavens, which God put in place. They were worshiping the wrong thing. Listen, as believers who have the Holy Spirit and God's Word, we have to ask regularly for discernment to know when we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Romans 1 says that substituting the things of God for the things that were, are worldly puts us in danger of hell. And compromise is a slow but steady path that we easily fall into if we don't have discernment from the Lord. This didn't happen overnight. This happened over time. And the people had compromised. So look at what Joshua does, Josiah does fourth. He brings out the Asherah. What are the Asherah? Those were idols that glorified sexual deviance. And again, notice that they're in the house of the Lord. This was more important to them. You know, if there is one lust that the world cannot control itself about, it's lust. If there is one thing right now that our world cannot contain itself about, it is the emphasis on sex. It is so dominant and so pervasive and the lack of restraint is so unbridled and the sense of entitlement, listen now, is so strong that even our government is trying to make laws to kill corporations that won't promote it. The sense of entitlement that I can do whatever I want with whomever I want at any time and get out of my face but pay for my mistakes is so powerful that if we don't see that this is 2 Kings 23, then we're completely missing it. What God meant for good, man has used for evil. And this describes our nation. Listen now, I don't talk about sex very often, but sex has become a cult. And any thought of modesty or discipline is long gone. But when there ha that happens, there is a price. So what does Josiah do? He takes the Asherah and he burns it and he grinds it into dust and he throws it on the graves of the common people. There's no mistaking the metaphor there. And then fifth, quickly, he tears down the house of the male prostitutes. 
they were also in the temple. The males were prostituting themselves in the temple. The women were knitting. Oh, there's our false gods, and there's our, our idols to sex, and we're going to knit them little blankets that we'll put around them, and it'll be lovely. And, and this is going on in the temple. Listen now, in the temple. This is not some house 10 miles down the road. This is the house of God that Solomon built that is in complete disarray. There is utter spiritual chaos. Nobody's living for the Lord. Nobody knows where the book of the law is. When the high priest finds it, he's like, oh good, the book of the law. Takes the king, he goes, I had no idea this was here. And why did this happen? Let's finish. What led to this level of spiritual corruption? We've got to understand it so we don't fall into it ourselves. And we need to become very intentional about resisting it. The people had lost their sensitivity to sin. Now, I want you to write this down if you've written nothing else. I'm, I'm convinced that all of us need to hear this this morning. The people had lost their sensitivity to sin, and that happens in a four-step process. How do we lose our sensitivity to sin? First of all, we stop being shocked and outraged by what opposes God's word. The first step to a declining spiritual sensitivity is to stop being shocked and outraged by what opposes God's word, what blatantly promotes depravity. And I'm telling you, more and more, this is becoming the norm for Christians. The second step is that we stop being offended by it. And then we start to excuse it as not threatening, not a big deal, that we will have greater cultural understanding if we will just become a little bit more tolerant, that society will advance if we will just open up and understand that we have been way too destructive. This is society's biggest pressure on us right now. And then the third step of spiritual decline is we stop standing for our convictions. And we primarily do this because we're worried about being out of touch and being intolerant. That's the lie of the enemy. And then the fourth thing is that we stop resisting it and we start participating in it because it's too late to do any different because if we go back now, we're going to be hypocritical. And besides, what's the big deal? Spiritual compromise Spiritual insensitivity to sin starts with not being shocked, then not being offended, then not standing for our convictions, and then participating in it. I told the parents on Thursday night, I said, we are, we are up against something we've never seen before because the moral standard of our culture is gone. I'm not talking declining. It's gone. Those parents raising those young children will have a harder time even than I am having raising teenagers because those children, by the time they get to the age of awareness, will never have known what cultural moral restriction is. They'll have no idea. It's like our kids who have never known anything but the Internet and 90 million channels. They've never seen any different. When you talk about, I used to have to get up and change the channel, and there were three channels. They look at you like, are you from Mars? From like 1412? What's wrong with you? And I'll say, that was just like 20 years ago. These kids, listen now, this is why we have to pray for them. These kids will never know culture saying, stop. Imagine 
the pressure on these parents to raise them. What is happening now would have given my grandparents a heart attack. It was unthinkable. Imagine what another 20 years, if the Lord delays, will do. Everything is up for grabs, and the only way we can deal with it is by doing what Josiah does in verses 10 to 20. He goes on a full-scale path of destruction. He smashes altars. He stops acts of idol worship. He removes those who promote false gods. Now you say, why so harsh? Because there is no way to eradicate sin apart from getting completely rid of it. If you and I think that we can manage sin or that we can finesse it or that it can be around us and we can play with it a little bit, it's not going to really mess with us. It won't affect our marriages. It won't affect our kids. It won't affect our witness. We can still be an ambassador and still be in the world. We are fooling ourselves. Be set apart. I have called you to be set apart and sanctified to me. You are mine. You are bought with a price. You have a transformed mind and a renewed heart. Now, love me more than anything else. Are we doing that? I'm talking to myself this morning. Are we doing that? Do we love the Lord to that extent? Look at one more thing. I'm way past time. Read verses 19 and 20. We're going to pray. Bible flipped. 2 Kings 23, look at verses 9 and 10. Nope, I'm sorry, 19 to 20, forgive me. Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places which in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord, and he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. All the priests of the high places were there, were slaughtered on the altars, and he burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. That wasn't the right passage. I meant chapter 22. Can we read two more verses? He's still with me, right? I read the wrong verses. Here's why the Lord blessed Josiah. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against the inhabitants who become a desolation and a curse. You've torn your clothes and wept before me. I've truly heard you, declared the Lord. Therefore, behold, I'll gather you to your fathers, and you'll be gathered in your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil that I'll bring on this place. This is so important. I know it's late, and I know it's hot, and you're tired, but, but just get this. Give me one minute. I called this message the keys to spiritual revitalization because if we want to be blessed, and we want the Lord to use us to influence others, first of all, we have to take these strong steps of reform And second of all, our heart has to be right. Revival, you research it. I've read many books on revival. Revival always starts with a stirring of the heart where people are stirred and they start to call on the Lord and they start to do what he says. There will be no revival. Listen, our nation's not lost yet, but it's close. There will be no revival in our churches. There will be no revival in our homes. There will be no revival in our nation. If our hearts, when they are stirred, don't cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, humble me, and what do I do? If we don't do that, if we continue to live a duplicitous life, if we continue to just be dull about it, revival will never come.
When the Lord convicted and stirred Josiah's heart, look at it. We're going to pray. He said, there are three things about you that I love. One, your heart is tender. You're spiritually sensitive. You're ready to be changed by God. Is your heart like that this morning? Is your heart tender? Is it sensitive? Is it soft before the Lord? Is it pliable? Second, he humbled himself before the Lord. The word means to be in subjection. When you look at your life, are you in subjection to the Lord? Are you his subject? Do you serve him? Or is it a battle for will? Third, and finally, he was broken before the Lord. There had been a complete lack of attention to God's word, but when he hears it, it, his sin is exposed, the nation's sin is exposed, and it grieves him. But he doesn't sit back and go, wow, what a tragedy. He takes action. Does that describe you and me? Every factor was against him. His age, his family, his culture, everything that seemed normal. But when God stirred his heart, Josiah said, there has to be a change. What does God need to change in you this morning? What needs to be subjected to him? What idol has to be torn down? Are you willing? The Lord will use us if we are.